Hey, podcast fans, this is Chris Webster, founder of the APN, and I just want to thank you for downloading this episode. Please consider becoming a member of the APN if you're not already and helping us make more great shows and get them out to the world. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members or click the link in the show notes. On to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. The Dirt Podcast is brought to you with support from the Archaeology Division of the American Anthropological Association. And welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And this week, we're doing something a little different. We've been doing this show for over, a little over one year now. And in that time, I know, I know, congrats to us and congrats to you. (laughs) Um, And thank you. (laughs) And in that time, we've gotten some really great questions, comments, and messages from our listeners. Yeah, and we love that, and we wanted to share some of those questions and our attempts at answers with all of you. Yeah, and maybe if this inspires all y'all wonderful listeners to get in touch with us, which you can do at thedirtpod.com via the Contact Us link, or you can email us at thedirtpodcast at gmail.com. We'll do more of these listener question episodes. Yeah, okay, so... Let's start with an email we got pretty early on from listener Emma. Um, also, we're, we're sometimes going to skip over some parts of these emails because you're all very wonderful and you give us nice compliments, but it kind of feels weird to read those about ourselves. So we'll to just ourselves. skip those parts <laughs> to ourselves. Yeah. Okay. So Emma wrote, hey. Hey, Emma. Hey. So I DM'd you recently on Instagram, which listeners you can also do on Instagram. We're at the dirt pod regarding the Scandinavian usage of the word thing in political gatherings, which I believe maybe is also actually pronounced ting in those languages, but I'm not sure. Anyway, that was me speaking, not Emma. Well, yeah, because Emma goes on to clear that up for you. (laughs) Emma says, I attempted to look into the etymology for the word ting to to see where it originally came from or what it meant, but it got a little finicky, so I'm not quite sure how to coherently explain it. Anyways, doggos. That's the kind of change in topic that I appreciate. (laughs) As a dog lover myself, I found your episode on dogs through the ages very intriguing, and I kind of wanted to add my own very limited knowledge on the case. The Church Grim... So this is less archaeology and more superstition and folklore, but in Great Britain and Scandinavia, it was believed that the first creature to be buried at a new churchyard would remain there eternally to help other spirits pass on. Now, understandably, no one really wanted themselves or their loved ones to end up like that, so they buried a dog as a sacrifice to make sure the first to be buried there wasn't human. It's equal parts awful and extremely cute, and I can't quite decide whether to awe at the adorable ghost doggies or cringe at the general cruelty of it all. Okay. Well, thank you, Emma. That is a really interesting little um, nugget of folklore, and so we looked into it a bit. And so um, I came across a brief and um, kind of irresponsibly reported (laughs) story from uh, strangeremains.com, which, you know... That serves me right. Uh, 
So this is this is a story from the internet that is based on archaeology, and I had to do a little additional um, internet digging to come across the actual primary source. But we we'll get there. We're starting out with Dig Ventures, which yeah. I think we've mentioned on this show before. I don't <laughs> think we have because because you would I have wouldn't. made that noise. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so Dig Ventures is a London-based archaeology group, and they unearthed the bones of a giant dog from a shallow grave about 20 inches deep in the ruins of Leston Abbey in Suffolk. Archaeologists estimate that the canine stood more than seven feet tall on its hind legs. Okay, this is the <laughs> this is the part that made me so cranky, because at first glance, I read the dog stood more than seven feet tall. Who measures a dog on its hind legs? They just wanted to make it seem really big. I mean, so the wait, dog probably measure, stood like three well, feet tall. I tell people that, you know, I'm five seven on my hind legs. You well. I can't dispute that, so never mind. And the dog weighed about 200 pounds, which they didn't give me any information for how they figured that out. But, you know, that sounds like maybe about a wolfhound size. So it was a really big dog, but it was not seven feet tall the way that we normally look at dogs. And so uh, the researchers believe that canine bones likely date to when the abbey was active, so are likely medieval, but they're awaiting confirmation from testing. Okay, okay. Dig Ventures. Yeah. <laughs> like, I, we think it came from when this place was a thing. Yeah, right. Well, okay, so I think it was more the the strangeremains.com that was <laughs> reporting it this way because I then clicked on several other links and uh, found some better information but before so let's before we get to that a little bit of the folklore side of things oh oh okay this is what you're okay no i know a lot about this <laughs> yeah i texted you to ask if you yeah, knew about i thought you're like specifically around like church dogs i'm like no we don't have that but no black dogs black oh dogs did you bad. mean like did you mean like like church mousies I, like the church I, mouse i think i just sort of thought about it in terms of like Dogs that live in churches? But like ghosts of dogs, because black dogs, not same, same ghost dogs. Like ghost dogs, you just, like, they're just lots of, like, really, like, sweet stories that make me cry about how, like, people will oh, be, like, ha- haunt, they're, like, you know, haunting. The, the best but, kind like, of haunting? Yeah, with, like, just their a pets. Pup. Their pets stay around. Yeah. So that's what I was thinking about. Not okay, black well, dogs. No. Black okay, dog, well, yeah. when I when I get through this section, you can you can lay that on me, um, and see if you can augment any of this information. But we're specifically talking, I guess, about black dogs here in the context of English folklore because this was in Leicester, or not Leicester. It was in Leston Abbey in Suffolk. Okay, so. English folklore is full of stories about a supernatural dog known as Black Shuck that prowled the countryside around Leston Abbey about 500 years ago. Due to the size and date of the bones that they found, that Dig Ventures found, many have speculated that these large canine remains could be connected to the legend of Black Shuck. Yeah, sure, in that both are dogs. Hellhounds, or devil dogs, mm, pastry, are supernatural... Oh, no. oh, God, no. I had a devil dog <laughs> on the streets of San Francisco once that... How'd badly. that go? It went bad. It it went <laughs> dark. <laughs> oh gosh! <laughs> Wait, was this a hot dog or the chocolate kind? It was a hot dog that I got late at night. No, bud. No, this nothing against the purveyor of the hot of the of said devil dog. It, Is that what you call devil dogs? Because I'm talking about the the chocolate cake thing. What? 
There's a chocolate cake pastry, like hostess or something makes something called a devil dog. Like, like, like devil's food cake. Oh, no. In kind of I've a hot dog shape. Literally never heard that, but um, <laughs> that's a chocodile. <laughs> I've never heard that. You can get a, oh, yeah, check out regional Timeless marketing in, in Oakland and Berkeley. They make chocodiles. That and sounds they're great. like vegan Twinkies, but they're like devil's food oh. cake. All right. But yeah, it's a chocodile. All right. All right. Uh, that never made to... me barf. Great. That's why I was like, you got chocolate cake on the street and it made you barf? No, I just got a hot dog you wrapped in bacon. Made, yeah, okay. <laughs> that makes a lot more sense. It, 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 it was a roll late. Okay. <laughs> Hellhounds, or devil dogs, are supernatural animals found throughout ancient mythology and on the streets of San Francisco, <laughs> folklore, and fiction. People have reported sightings and attacks throughout history. Yep. Witnesses describe them as having black fur, glowing eyes, supernatural strength and or speed, large teeth, long claws, as well as smelling of brimstone. Devil dogs are said to guard the entrance to the underworld and the grounds of graveyards, and they also hunt lost souls or protect a supernatural treasure. In European folklore, seeing a hellhound or hearing it howl is seen as a bad omen or the cause of death. Hellhounds appear in the mythology and folklore of many cultures and have many names, including the three-headed Cerberus in Greek mythology, the jackal-headed Anubis, which mm, no. in Egyptian mythology, uh, Garm or Garmer in North mythology, Pero Negro in Latin America, and Black Shuck in England. Most recently, they show up in The Hound of the Baskervilles, The Grimm in the Harry Potter series. Oh, my little Grimm is yelling. <laughs> my little kitty Grimm is doing a big yell. Uh, and in scary, like, I barfed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she had a hot dog from she San had a Francisco too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and in scary movies like The Omen and Cujo. Okay, so that was the Strange Remains article. Um, here is a slightly more responsible article that that article linked to from uh, eadt.co.uk. Despite tales of a fiery-eyed monster showing up in graveyards, forests, and roadsides, and an account of claw marks surfacing on the door to Blytheburg Church, the giant dog's existence has been reserved to the annals of folklore. Until now, <laughs> perhaps, as archaeologists have revealed evidence of huge skeletal remains. Okay, it was just a big dog, unearthed by a member of the public in the trenches at Leston Abbey last year. The Dig Ventures team are set to return to the site this summer, uh, this being the summer of 2012, um, and are again inviting amateur history hunters to take their place alongside the experts with the prospect of coming across an equally exciting discovery. Of course, the giant remains are more likely what remains of someone's beloved canine companion and is currently being analyzed to find out how long it was buried in the grounds of the monastic ruins. I mean, I, I looked at, they had a photo of the, of the grave with the bones exposed and it was a big dog. So it was like dog. maybe the size of a, you know, like a great Dane or an Irish wolfhound. Um, I don't think, you know, I think a lot of this is sort of whipping up public yeah, like, interest. So like somebody, somebody buried their pup. A, somebody and, buried a big dog. Yeah. And later folks are like, this is obviously the devil dog. Uh, yeah, but yeah, no, it's um, but you know the idea, you know the the myth of of Cerberus, and I guess to some extent, and it, you know the the idea of dogs being associated with 
you know, encountering the dead in some way. Um, that's well, really think, old. Yeah. I think it's more, um, the dogs have a, like they're a, guardians. Yeah. They have like a security role and that's, <laughs> and like the security, the, staff. the boundary between the living and the dead is one that you want to keep. It's a threshold. Yeah. But like firmly Very guarded. Much. So I think it had, that has. More yeah. To it do has with it. logical but, sort of myth, mytho, mythological huh, connections. Yeah. And that's, and I, that's, completely separate from the like from the archaeological dog well well it's also completely separate from the idea of like like omen ominous dogs yeah yeah but that's something different yeah yeah but still a really cool tie-in to the dog episode that we did once upon a time yeah so thank you emma dogs okay next up we have an email from ryan jones I specifically gave you this one because he wrote this email in such a charming Southern way with so many y'alls <laughs> that if I, that if I read it, you know, you would do a much better job as an actual more Southern person. <laughs> okay. Ryan says, Hey y'all, I'm new to this podcast stuff and I never, ever even tried to talk to any podcasters. My apologies if that's not what I'm supposed to call y'all. Isn't that sweet? <laughs> you can call, you can us, call podcasters. us podcasters, Ryan. Yeah. Yeah, well, you, yeah, that's what we are. That. Yep. Yeah. Um, but anyways, I'd like to tell y'all I, that I totally dig what y'all do. I'm an amateur archaeologist of sorts, but I did date a full-fledged archaeologist way back when. And when I hear y'all, I hear her too. Like there's some sort of personality similarities or something. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. But, well, I, yeah, you remind me of my ex. Um, <laughs> Which, I, you know, I choose to take that as a compliment. Yeah, but that's not why I write. Like I said, I'm new to this podcast stuff. I'm not sure if this is something that I might have missed, but I'd love to hear um, a, about opinions on us, quote, arrowhead hunters, end quote. I know it can be a touchy subject. Perhaps it's shades of his relationship. <laughs> and some of us arrowhead hunters are nothing more than grave robbing looters. Yikes. <laughs> but some of but some like myself do try to do our best to add to the science. Personally, I only surface hunt and write down the info of where I found it, etc. My daddy even went as far as having a place on our family land registered with the state. One FA 85, I think it's called Alabama Fayette County, 85th site registered. I hope that's how it works. That is how it works. If how, what they do in Alabama is like what they do in West Virginia, um, that it's just like a basic registry. Yeah. But there's not much I've heard about us amateurs on any podcast. I would love to hear something from y'all. Also, I'm from Tuscaloosa, just north of Moundville, and would love to hear something about there, too. Please tell me y'all know about Moundville. It's friggin' huge. I've heard it called the Big Apple of the early thousands. Peace and we, love. We have heard about Moundville. <laughs> peace, peace and love from Tuscaloosa, Alabama, Ryan Jones, and Roll Tide. Roll Tide. Aw, I miss Susan. My, my, my former roommate, my former roommate, Susan, who is now uh, studying in France. Hi, Susan. Hello. Maybe she'll listen. Uh, is very much Alabaman. She is. She's very Alabamian. Yeah. Oh, Alabamian. I don't know. Okay. Anyway, roll time. Anyway, yes. Um, thank you for that email. That is great. Um, I definitely think that we should do an episode on sort of citizen science in archaeology. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, and we've, we've 
kind of toss that idea around because it is something that you don't hear about. And we like talking to the people who do archaeology and what archaeology looks like. Um, And so we've we've done some of that, but we want to move into the more um, the citizen science arena. Um, And thank you. Thanks to you and to your father for setting a pretty good example for what to do. So I'm assuming that the surface collection that you do is on your own property or on someone else's private property with their explicit permission, because um, if you aren't doing that, that's soups illegal. Um, Yep. So So, we're going to make that assumption and move (laughs) forward with that. Yeah. So um, in the United States, um, though, like laws governing um, archaeological inquiry and um, like if you're going to dig for anything or look for anything, um, if it's on private property that's done state by state, there are statutes around it. Um, Mm -hmm. If it's on federal property, like federal lands, public lands, um, you basically just can't. And then there are permitting, um, like there, there are different laws around permitting. But if you are, if it's on your own property and you are doing um, you find like a, a stone point or you've just, you find a thing. Like, um, there are lots of places you, you where you find a thing. Yeah. 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 You find a thing like an old, you find like old ceramic material, like, yeah. or like China, like pottery sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you find stuff. Um, that's fine. You've not committed a crime. <laughs> Fantastic news. Start there. Um, But yeah, you make a really good point about um, like there being different uh, motivations. So if you're just collecting stuff the way people would like when I was a young naturalist and I'd collect potato shells and like like gnawed on pine cones and things like that like if you take the sort of approach if it's of it for, being, yeah, for your own no 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 let me let me finish sorry i don't want sorry. you to agree with my point yet because i'm talking okay. about how it's bad oh. uh, so if you're collecting it as like some sort of like natural scientific endeavor or you're just collecting it like that's a problem because it's not because that sort of feeds into the idea of it being some part of the natural environment or the natural landscape Um, and not something that's from like human existence and human life. So if you're just collecting Ah. it because in like a very like Pokemon sense, so just like (laughs) got to catch them all. Yeah. Um, that's uncool. But if you are, um, if you are finding these things like on your own property or you are interested in it from in like a, a very like, um, lay person archaeological inquiry, um, and you're doing that as, Um, sort of doing it mindfully and in a way that is responsible, like what you're doing, if you are registering it with your um, state society um, Mm -hmm. or learning about it. And you're taking it like every time you find something like that, it should be an opportunity for you to like take a moment and think about the fact that this is um, indigenous land that you live on and that you conduct your life on um and like take that as a moment to remind you to like learn about the um the people who would have created that and the descendant communities and actually i'm gonna jump ahead of the script here you talk about being super close to moundville well I learned that coming up in October is the Moundville Native American Festival where they do like history stuff, but they also do um, like 
living descendant communities. Oh, that's um, awesome. So it's a like a, a cultural festival. And so you can actually like learn. So like because it go. sounds yeah, it sounds like Ryan is interested in this from a perspective of wanting to learn more and know more and contribute. And so yeah, so I really only know about Moundsville, which is in West Virginia. Different. And yeah. and it's home of the Grave Creek Mound and its associated archaeological com- complex, um, which confusingly enough is home to one mound, whereas Mound Ville is home to more than one. Wild. They got their they got their plural mixed. Yeah. Mm. So um the Moundville archaeological park is um it has a very nice website. Uh, this is the one in Alabama. Yeah. It's okay. in, it's administered by the University of Alabama. And so there's the archaeological park itself and there's a museum. There's like a camping site. So you could like Make a weekend of it. Very cool. Oh, man. Um, I yeah. really so, want to go. I'm going to include the link to that in the show notes so that folks can learn more about it. But um, as just sort of like a maybe a teaser for when we talk m- more extensively um, mm-hmm. about um, citizen science, citizen science, there I'm going to give some some pro tips, some do's and don'ts. And this is from the website for the Archaeological Society of Virginia, because I live in East Virginia now. So here's like some like fun do's and don'ts. Do keep records of artifacts found lying on the surface of your property, mm-hmm. which Ryan does. Um, and I'm um, sorry, can I jump in? Yeah. If you have a if you have a smartphone, um, there are a lot of apps that are like theodolite apps and sort of mapping apps where you can drop pins on really specific um, coordinates. And a so theodol- that's- theodolite is like the total station. Yeah, it's a, Just, a geographic measuring device that uses GPS data, basically, to give points exact X, Y, and Z coordinates in space in reference to where your geographic location is. My, so it's my a, writing group got very angry at me for using Theodolite. They're like, what does word even mean? They just got, like, really mad. <laughs> Look it up. I yeah, so you yeah. can yeah. you can you can do that on your phone is the point I was going to make. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, keep, you know, record if you find something. Mm-hmm. Uh, do report sites discovered on your property to um, in Virginia's case the Department of Historic Resources. They they also go on to make it very clear that they're not going to like seize your land and do an excavation on it. Like they just want to know. So, you don't there's no action there's no required. repercussions yeah yeah um do maintain your site in its natural condition and protect it from inadvertent destruction so maybe don't plant crops on it yep or like put your gazebo there do learn about your site and other nearby sites that's cool yeah mm-hmm don't allow unqualified persons to cl- to collect or dig at your site that's an important one <laughs> And so report any unauthorized activities like looting to the state archaeologist and the police. Especially since it probably means you have trespassers on your property. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, And so and also don't conduct any earth moving or construction in the immediate vicinity of your site. Like, again, hold off on Mm -hmm. that gazebo. Yep. Um, So for our listeners that are based in the U.S., um, really so every state has a state archaeologist. Most states have state archaeological societies, which are like legitimate organizations, not just like 
people that are like, sure, I'll, I'll dig up, I'll dig up your, your stuff. Like, don't let those people <laughs> in your yard. Um, but they, to see their a badge. lot of them have, um, like the one, the one for Virginia that I just read from, they have forms or guidelines for, um, how to contact them and what information is used to help uh, is helpful for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also you can contact, um, local universities or museums, but like universities or museums or, or academic departments there. So this is like our friend Ryan could contact the university of Alabama because mm-hmm. they have sure. people there that more likely than not specialize in the kind of material that Ryan would be finding in his yard. Yep. Um, and so if you're going to contact any of these people, um, be sure to provide as much data, good data as possible. So mm-hmm. don't just write and be like, I found some stuff in my yard. Help like full email, um, <laughs> like include photos, um, measurements. Like if you can like put a ruler down next to it like and take the photo um, as and as many details as possible being like, you know, here's a photo of the front. Here's a photo of the back. This is where I found it. Um, this like my family has owned this property since like 1872 like sort of thing like we are yeah. here like we are located here like one mile from this creek like sort of thing like mm-hmm. and if you have your your actual like latitude and longitudinal data like include that that's helpful um and if you don't live in a place that has a like local legitimate archaeological society um you can reach out to universities or cultural heritage museums. There are ministries for uh, cultural history and things like that, depending on um, how your sort of local and national like infrastructure works, like how that works. Like there's usually somebody where there will be like an archaeological museum of whatever like province or state um, yeah. that you that you reside in and if you contact them and say I have these things um, even if they don't have somebody they are a great step towards yeah, finding somebody that could help and so yeah. the, that's not to say that people are going to come and like excavate your yard but that is to say that people will have a better sense of what material is where and, yeah. And that's that's really helpful. Oh, man. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. thank you for your service, Ryan. Yes. And thank you for the opportunity to talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, we'll talk about this more in the future. Mm-hmm. Yes, definitely. Yeah. Okay. Next up, we have a message from Nan and Caleb. But before we get into that, Amber, how about an ad? It's Chris Webster again. If you haven't checked out our new parent website, culturomedia.com, then please do. Culturo is spelled K-U-L-T-U-R-O, and it's where we promote all of our live events. We've got one coming up in November. Check it out over at Culturo when it gets posted. If it's already happened and you're hearing this, then as a member, you can go to your member pages and see the event recording. Our live events are always free, but you have to show up during the event to see it. So that's culturomedia.com for all our live events and more. Culturomedia.com. Culturomedia.com. 
Chris Webster here, founder of the APN and host of several shows. I just wanted to let you know about our membership program and what it offers. Members of the APN get, for just $7.99 a month or cheaper if you pay for the year, ad-free episodes so you don't have to listen to me on the breaks, membership in our Slack team so you can continue the conversation with hosts and other members, and exclusive access to any of our live event recordings. Live events are always free, but you only get to watch the recording if you're a member. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info and to become a member. Our podcasts are always free, but this is just a little something extra and it really helps us out. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. So back to the message from Nan and Caleb. Uh, The episode upon which they were commenting was our climate one, the climbs they are a change in a title that I'm still pretty proud of. Okay. So they said, first of all, that they enjoyed the episode. Thank you. Thank you. So here is the message. You said a change in the earth's orbit caused the Sahara to dry out. This was a brief passing reference. What? You mentioned this briefly. We'd like to know more. Or did we hear this incorrectly? Seems like this change in orbit would be big news. Thanks for your podcast. We've learned a ton from Caleb and Nan. <laughs> Huge, if true. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I'm i not sure exactly which part of the discussion of the Sahara drying out uh, they're referencing. But in general, every 100,000 years or so, the Sahara experiences what's called a green period. And that's a period of increased humidity and more vegetation. And these periods last for around 5,000 years. So the last one um, that we know of existed around 6,000 years ago. And the Sahara that we know today as a desert was more of a tropical forested area. So what we were talking about in the climate episode, I think, though, was that there was a general drying and cooling trend of the Sahara a few million years ago that is thought to have contributed to the development of bipedal walking in our hominid ancestors. So that doesn't really have anything to do with the orbit of the Earth, which, yes, that would be extremely big news if um, the orbit of the Earth changed. Um, I don't I don't think that I said anything about the Earth's orbit, although we may have briefly mentioned the um, the axial kind of wobble of the earth and the way that it kind of, as it rotates around the sun, it also does this little back and forth wobble. It's not a completely straight axis. So maybe we mentioned that. Um, I don't and think so I that, said that affects like what, where the equator is. So yes. I think it's not how we're moving through space. It's how we're moving ourselves, like yes. ourselves being earth. Yes. How earth is moving itself. Um, so like when you think about, like seasons, how seasons change. I often do. Uh, yeah. So like right now it's spring. Spring is coming to our Antipodian listeners. So our, our, our friends down in Australia and New Zealand, it is becoming spring. Mm-hmm. Summer is ending for us here, maybe ending for us here in North America. And so that sort of thing like that, can be that is also affected by the, by wobble. the wobble, but the wobble yeah. it takes like thirty six thousand years, I think, is precession. So yeah, that's, it's not a it's not a quick wobble. Yeah, in in our little uh, fruit fly lifespans. Yeah, um, so oh, I feel so small. Yeah, that's a real perspective changer. Um, so I don't think Nan and Caleb uh, that the Earth's orbit has changed. Uh, I'm no astrophysicist, but that has remained pretty constant, our sort of elliptical orbit around the sun, um, since there was an Earth. So I I really hope I didn't goof that up on the climate episode. Uh, I'll go back and listen and see 
what I did. Um, okay. So, but the, the drying out of the Sahara is a really cool thing because, um, that at that time cool and dry was thing. the place where, what? Cool and dry thing. It was a cool and dry thing. Uh, but also a neat thing. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> what other synonyms can I use? Tight. Because it was tight. I don't know. What phase of wobble were we on? Dope. Um, are we cool yet? <laughs> that um, dry, that dry phase slapped. <laughs> it was banging. Okay. Um, so what was happening uh, around between nine and seven million years ago on Earth in the Sahara region, the, the region that we call the Sahara today, it had been this lush rainforested area. And then there was a significant climate phase change. And those forests started going away and being replaced by open grasslands. And so the our ancestors that had been living in these forested areas and having a primarily uh, arboreal tree-based lifestyle, right? So they were getting around going from tree to tree. All of a sudden, in order to get to a new patch of resources, they needed to be able to cross that open savanna. And it is often um, put forth that bipedal walking developed kind of in conjunction with this move to sort of a new lifestyle, a new um, ecosystem. So yeah, the drying of the Sahara represents a really important point in human evolution, but it has to do with um, changes in the Earth's um, climate and whether water is locked up in glaciers at the poles or whether it is free and easy living in those oceans. Um, so, yeah, thank you. Thank you for that question, though. It's a really good point to clarify. Yeah. All right. Up next, a Twitter question. Why are people so mean there? Is that your specific Twitter well, question? Yeah, a Twitter question. Yeah. So this is a question via Twitter from Mary. Yes. Which you can you can ask us questions on Twitter and we're at Dirt Podcast on Twitter. Yeah. So Mary asks, I've watched the video of the man playing the lithophone several times. What's the evidence for musical inter- instruments in the Stone Age, etc.? So... We're going to do an episode about musical instruments one of these days. We have, we've talked about them. We've talked about For musical sure. instruments. But yeah. we should do one about like the earliest instruments. And I mean, we can do several episodes on yeah. musical oh, instruments. Oh, I'm so excited. And oh, we, we've my music it's been on our list twitching. since before we started the podcast. And yep. we'll, we'll get there eventually. But the video in question here, the video that... Uh, Mary is asking about is of Dr. Jean-Luc Ringot. Is his name John Wolf? Yeah, Jean-Luc. Yeah, it's I I wonder if Loop means anything else, but all I know is that it means Wolf, so his name is John Wolf, but maybe it's like Wolfgang, you know? Whoa. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, uh, Dr. Ringot is um apparently a specialist in prehistoric music. Um, And he's kneeling in a circle of large, flat chunks of stone and using a smaller stone the way a xylophone player would use a mallet. um, And the stones produce these very clear ringing tones. So his lithophone is basically a stone xylophone because a xylophone is in turn basically a wood lithophone. Because (laughs) xylo means wood. Yes. Um, has been a traditional instrument in many cultures. And so um, several societies in 
in Eastern Asia, uh, Vietnam has a very long lithophone tradition. So Mm -hmm. are you saying there, Anna, that they've been doing it for a long time or they got big old rocks that they're hitting? Both. Oh, Um, for a very, very long time. Um, There's no real evidence that any Paleolithic folks used flint or any other stones that way. And we know of. I have... Uh, a, I know, I know. I'm so excited. I love. I was like, when, yeah, I saw like story time, and I was like, oh, could it be? I hope it's the story. <laughs> I think. I think it is. So <laughs> keep going, though. Okay. Keep going. So the earliest known Stone Age instruments. Now, is this Stone Age or is it Neolithic? Because as I learned in our episode during the Chronica season, mm-hmm. um, Stone Age only refers to within the continent of Africa? Uh, you know, it's one of those instances where terms, unfortunately, do kind of double duty. And in in the case of referring to specific um, technological complexes, Stone Age does refer only to Africa. But in this case, um, Stone Age is sort of being used interchangeably with Paleolithic because this is... This is a case of European artifacts, and it's very much not Neolithic. It's well before so it's the Neolithic. Paleolithic. Okay. Yeah. Well, these instruments are bone flutes. Very metal. Um, <laughs> they're made from bird bone and mammoth ivory. Uh, and Anna thinks that there's one of each. Because <laughs> I don't I don't think this is like a compound instrument oh, right. that yeah. includes it's, bird bone and ivory. It's like, a, like an ivory flute. A bone flute. Or yeah. batusked birds. Oh. <laughs> 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 um, and they come from Gleisenklosterle cave in southern Germany. So carbon mm-hmm. dating shows that the flutes are between 42,000 and 43,000 years old. Um, and the cave also contains other evidence that it was inhabited by Homo sapiens. And the findings were described in the a Journal of Human. Wow, I really struggled with that word. The Journal of Human Evolution in 2012. The je. What? Oh, yeah. J-H-E. So, okay, Anna. <laughs> tell us this story. So this is. Oh, actually, this story comes right along the same time as this article in je the year before, <laughs> because um, the first year I went abroad on excavation. I went to Southwest France and I got a chance. It was a really small team. And so we got a chance to do some activities, you know, on weekends and stuff. So on one of these occasions, we went to the property of this really kind of cantankerous French farmer. uh, And he had a cave on his property. It was a painted cave. So we went down into it and we saw the cave paintings and it was amazing. And then at the very end, um, he was he the guy that didn't speak French either. No, he's, he didn't speak English. I knew he, spoke, he didn't speak English, but I thought he spoke like Occitan or something. No, no, no. He okay. he just spoke French, but had absolutely no patience for okay. Okay. those those <laughs> among us who. So I I understood enough <laughs> French at the time to kind of whisper a translation to a few like the handful of other <laughs> students who didn't speak French, but he would he got annoyed. And so and his little stories to us about the cave paintings were sort of peppered with silence because. <laughs> He would yell at us. And I'd just be like, bleh, bleh. sorry, sir. And he looked like he looked like this little apple-cheeked grandpa. He was so wholesome looking, but he was so cranky. 
And so right at the end of this tour, he, um, we got too close to the cave entrance, I guess, which was also the cave exit. And <laughs> there, were, <laughs> there were a whole bunch of stalactites hanging from, it was in you know, a low ceilinged cave. And so he could reach the stalactites and he had this sort of willow stick that he had tucked into the back of his pants and he would pull it out to point to things as we were going through this tour. And so he pulled out his little willow stick and he launched into this story about how he was absolutely certain that the people who had lived in these caves during the Stone Age, the Paleolithic, um, used these stalactites as musical instruments. And so he was going through and telling us this story. And then he sort of did a little ding, 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 ding on the stalactites. But then right at the end, as he hit kind of the final note, he also farted. And so I don't know if that was part of the performance, but it, I, it will stick in my mind forever because it was like dee, 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 dee. and it was the silliest day um boy that was a great tour it really was i it really was kind of awe-inspiring it was i think that's that's what was so weird and surreal about it because we had just had this like mind-blowing and awe-inspiring sort of trip back forty thousand years and and then that happened and he we was, just all sort of left like, and we're like, what do we do with that? He was the Virgil to your Dante's. <laughs> like, <laughs> if Virgil as you, was... As you're coming out <laughs> of, of the Inferno. <laughs> he plays two instruments. <laughs> Listeners should know that this is not the first time I've heard this story. <laughs> no, but she loves it. <laughs> <laughs> God, what a great day. Okay. Okay. All right. Uh, Tell us, keep give going. us something from Facebook. <laughs> okay, well, while, while you recover. Yeah, right? Oh, yeah. Feels good to laugh. <laughs> okay. Next, we have a Facebook question from Lynette. What are they doing with our data? <laughs> Amber has very different questions than our <laughs> listeners. Um, so Lynette asks, what are some types of finds which might differentiate between a late 19th century boarding house and a brothel, which is both Sounds like a, a wonderful and in, yeah, I know a boarding house and a brothel walk into a bar, which sounds like a really, it, it's an intriguing question. It's an amazing question, but also really targeted. So like Lynette, is this your area of research? Are you just super interested in this stuff? Did you know? That I wrote an article for Sapiens on exactly this. Know, right. <laughs> like what synergy? So we'll link to that article in our show notes. Um, but it is about the work that my friend and colleague Jade Lewis did for her doctoral dissertation. She is now Dr. Lewis. So if this is a topic you, you, Lynette, or you, the listener, are interested in, I would certainly advise you to look Jade up. I've never known her to shy away ever from answering questions about 19th century sex workers. So... She'd be delighted, I'm sure. And she's now the, um, oh, I forget her exact job title, but she's, I, mean, don't I dox guess. her. <laughs> huh? Doxing Jade. Did I say dot? No, like, you keep giving, like, what? more and more details about her. Like, no, it's. This is her mailing address. <laughs> no, it's just that she's she's got a really cool job now because she's one of, at least one, if not the, curator of um, museum exhibits at Plymouth Plantation. Wow! So, right? Did they have yeah. they have a lot of sex workers there. No, so it's different. She just does hmm. historical archaeology, and she's very I mean, very that good would be, at it. That would be very cool. 
Yeah. Well, anyway. Um, so I'm, as you may have guessed, listeners, not a historical archaeologist. And so this, apart from Jade's work, which I helped with in some ways, but um, I did the faunal analysis for her. So I know a lot about the food that they ate there. But in general, um, this stuff is not my area of expertise. But here's my understanding. Often there was kind of a tenuous line between boarding houses and brothels in the United States at this time, so the late 19th century. The latter, brothels, was illegal, as it is still now in many places in the U.S., but some enterprising folks found a way to skirt those laws. Archaeologically, some things that you might find that would be clues that sex workers were living in a particular place would be the following. So lots of things having to do with cleanliness, which at the time, sort of before um, germ theory really took hold, um, the idea of smelling nice and appearing clean was really linked to the idea of being disease free. Um, disease, you know, meaning STIs. So lots of perfumes, toiletries, etc., things like that, which again, you'd also probably find in a boarding house. So it's definitely not, you know, you need a lot of these lines of information together to really uh, be able to make any conclusions. You could also find bottles or tins for medical treatments that had something to do with the prevention or cure of STIs. These usually involved mercury or some other thing that was terrible for you. Something that Jade's site had for her, uh, the site that she worked on, which was in Boston's North End, um, <clears throat> had uh, vaginal syringes, or at least what uh, she concluded pretty, pretty conclusively, that were vaginal syringes. So um, these were used for, you know, feminine hygiene. Um, and so these often also had traces of mercury. So the mercury was thought to cure syphilis. It didn't. But if you died from mercury poisoning, then it wasn't syphilis that killed you. So win-win, I guess. Um, Sounds like the, Big Mercury had it made. <laughs> they really did. Mercury, remember we in the, I, yeah. in the um, archaeological poop episode, we talked about how it was also a oh, laxative. Man. Yeah. And yowzers, bowsers. Yep. <laughs> okay. So uh, this next one, brief content warning, harm to babies or small children. So skip ahead a minute or so. Um, you can also find human fetal bones in privies or buried on property associated with uh, places that were brothels, possibly as a result of sex workers dealing with pregnancies. But again, not an automatic indicator during this time. Infant mortality was still very, very high. Um, okay. Next one, historical records, including gentlemen's guides to different cities that were published anonymously and were not about the usual tourist attractions that guidebooks usually list, but instead about the city's best brothels. And so the New York Times uh, a couple years ago published an article on this. And I actually found in searching, because I, I remembered that article and I was looking for it, and I actually found the, the New York Times published the text of one of these, a gentleman's vest pocket guide. Um, so we'll throw up the link to that on our show notes. And then the article itself is also available uh, at cityroom.blogs.newyorktimes.com. And so you can read about these guides and then read the guide itself. And lastly, maybe census records? I'm totally guessing. But <clears throat> maybe there were periods where you could be a, a madam or an owner of a brothel of not ill repute. I don't know. I'm wondering. That was a question for the historical archaeologist out there. Hi, Jade, if you're listening, uh, if you want to write in the dirt podcast at gmail.com. Our next, our next one will be like, we've got a Facebook comment from Jade who says, nope. <laughs> well, 
Maybe. <laughs> yeah, but I know that Jade used a ton of census information for her dissertation, but it was more like tracing the life history of one of the owners of this boarding house slash definitely a brothel. It was more about that life history and less about whether she was listed as a madam. But I wonder if that was something that was listed on census records in different uh, states or cities or counties or whatever. What was your question? Uh, so, yeah. So I have uh, my, so I've, I've read your Sapiens article about Jay's work and um, it's really interesting, but when talking about, especially with like this listener's question about the differences between a brothel and a boarding house, I feel like my gut tells me that um, probably Lots of things that we might associate with a brothel would be things that could just be associated with the like private lives of unmarried women. Yeah, for sure. Um, and so that's something that I know this has come up on um, a couple episodes, well, at least one episode of Dirt After Dark, but the idea of how in um, in a seriology there is the the I think harem tomb there was the word that was seen as like temple prostitute but it's actually just like unmarried woman yeah 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 Yeah, it's just like a woman who's not married and doesn't live in her father's home and that like the sort of the bias like the confirmation bias was so strong among people studying it that they were like well obviously she was a prostitute like like she was she was a like temple prostitute so there was some kind of like very like nefarious and exotic religious capacity in which she had sex with men like and and that's really problematic because it actually is just a like category of uh women who are unmarried and uh, of marriageable age but not married and so i wonder gasp what um whether there could be um like an analogous issue in like yeah. the the corpus of of research, um, like I think not in probably... Jade's case because like there it there are several different lines of evidence oh, that yeah. support no, this. But this was yes, but yeah, you have folks clear. that are perhaps um, sex workers that live in boarding houses because there were because that's where a time live. where people lived yeah. in boarding houses. Yeah. Um, but they also could just be women who, well, like, usually we're talking about women here, but people who have sex lives. lives. Yeah. Yeah. Who, yeah, who, yeah. That have, like, sexual relationships and the, the various things that come along with them. Um, but they do so outside of, like, rigid social conventions of yeah, I mean, like marriage. Yeah, and here, as in most of archaeology, you there's a lot of nuance to untangle, and it's absolutely a case-by-case situation. Like, there's a different story in every archaeological site. And so, yeah, chances are that you can use some of these pieces of evidence to determine whether something was a boarding house or a brothel, but there might not be an or. Like, it, yeah. it might just be this sort of overlapping combination of ways that people lived. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, huh? Huh. That was a that was a thinker. I'm very much a thinker. And then finally, another query via Yvonne via Facebook from Yvonne in Argentina. 
which <laughs> I like this. Yeah. And also, sorry, Yvonne, if that's not how you pronounce your name and it's actually Ivan. Uh, I don't know. Any but. opinions on pre-Incan civilizations? <laughs> yep. That was that was the question. Yeah, I like that. I'm like, I yeah. <laughs> Hmm. Um, yeah, because since this is something far outside my area of knowledge, I, anything I would have would be an opinion. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yep. Um, but yeah, this is definitely another one that's pretty much outside our wheelhouse. Um, so that definitely means that we will have a guest spurt on um, sometime to talk to us about it, which I can think of a couple. Um, All right. But hey. Listeners, are you into pre-Incan civilizations and or do you know someone who is? So you can tell us at any of the means that we've <laughs> named yep. here, but especially at the dirt podcast at gmail.com. But for Yvonne, Ivan, and all of our other listeners, um, here are a few pre-Inca morsels. First up is something that apparently Anna is going to blow my mind with. No, well, I don't know about blow your mind, but it's really cool. Um, so one of the oldest pre-Inca cultures in Peru, the Chavin people, lived in the northern Andean highlands from approximately 900 BCE to around 200 BCE. Are you saying... That that's there not weren't people there before then. <laughs> that's not the fact. No, but I'm just just clarifying. So, is this something uh, that, that like these are cultures that are seen as um, these are cultures antecedent many, to yes the Inca? Okay, great. Just wanna... well antecedent and not necessarily leading to the Inca culture. Okay, I want to make that clear. It's just people who were there before anything actually solidified into what we would call the Inca Empire. Okay. Okay, okay. So, yeah. these folks were adept metal workers, usually working in gold, and they were successful farmers too, growing potatoes, quinoa, and corn, and rearing llamas for both their meat and their wool. Here's a fact. Oh, wow. It's a, it's a good fact. The Chavin were also responsible for coming up with cha'arki, dried salted meat, in their case, llama meat, which would later gain, gain fame as jerky. Yeah, so if, oh if you ever God. wondered where the term beef jerky came from, it is derived from that word. Wow. Yeah! Isn't that cool? That's so cool. I love it. Yeah! Thank you. You're welcome. Next, we have the moche culture, um, also known as the mochicha, mochicha. Yeah, um, Moshika or Marchika, I'm not sure which. Um, and the Moshika flourished in Peru, in what is today Peru, uh, from around 100 CE to 800 CE, with their main territory confined to the region around present-day Moche and Trujillo in northern coastal Peru. Um, farming was their trade, and they built advanced irrigation systems to water their crops as well as um adobe temples which are known as huacas i just um, realized that it sounds like in that sentence that they watered their adobe temples yeah. uh they nope. kept them nice and damp um <laughs> Sorry. and so we we also talked about them um in an episode of dirt after dark where we talked about the their their sex pots so oh, called yeah. sex pots and one of our uh, friends of the show friends of the show emeline was at the museum yeah, recently that's right Yes. So thanks 
if you're her Facebook friend. <laughs> yeah. And also, also a friend of the show, Chris, um, sent me some pictures because she also went to Peru and hiked the Inca Trail and then wow. also went to that museum that has all of those moche, very sexually explicit ceramics. And she sent me some pictures of them uh, and I giggled. So and then you reported that. Her. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so the Shimu people moving on, uh, they arose from the remnants of the Moche culture in northern coastal Peru. So there was most likely something that was environmentally driven. Right. It was something. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's that's what I remember. There was um, like um, some kind of climatic catastrophe. That yes. affected the irrigation systems that watered their temples. Yeah, that's also what I recall <laughs> from um, most of the the most of what research we did for that has left my brain. <laughs> but there's a crumb in there that's like, yes, climate change. Yes. So um, the Shimu occupied an area in the Moche Valley near Trujillo, starting around 900 CE, and they were um, conquered and then I suppose incorporated. By the mm-hmm. Inca around 1470 CE. Um, their capital, Chan Chan, which <laughs> I say is <laughs> my joke in the margins, which I think is a very good joke. Um, this That would be the predecessor to 4chan. Yeah, except 3chan, 3chan obviously came first. RIP <laughs> 8chan and the scourge that it was on the internet. Oh, let it world. die. Yeah. <laughs> But keep going. Chan Chan uh, was the largest adobe city in the Americas and featured elaborate irrigation systems that would have been used to bring water to crops of papaya, sweet potatoes, cotton and beans. Um, And the Shimu also raised llamas and fished. Mm -hmm. Um, And the Shimu seemed to have had a cosmology based on the moon. And as with the Moche, human sacrifice was... um, it seems an important part of their religion, but no evidence of weapons. <laughs> <laughs> I wrote arms. You in wrote this arms. Like, just everyone like, there probably had arms. They had no arms. <laughs> <laughs> As in armament. Gosh. No evidence of weapons. Weapons or military rec- relics has ever been found at Shimu sites. Suggesting they were relatively peaceful people. Yep. Among the most prized Shimu creative outputs are their highly distinctive shiny black pottery and fine metalwork object items. Jesus. Which were made using copper, gold, silver, bronze, and tumbaga. uh, Which I have never heard of until now. Me neither, but it's a great word. And it is a mixture of copper and gold. That sounds Uh lovely. Uh Uh-huh. Like genuinely. Very, very, very glowy. <laughs> yeah. Shimu metalwork can be seen today at the Gold Museum in Lima. Mm-hmm. So why didn't you go there, Emmeline? Emmeline? <laughs> anyway. Well, that's not a comprehensive list of all the pre-Incan groups or nope. a comprehensive li- list of all the places that friends of the show have sent us photos of, <laughs> but it is a sampling. Um, and we'll do a full episode on one or more of these cultures some other time uh, when we find somebody who actually knows what they're talking about with them. Yep. Um, and that's why we love having our guest experts on the dirt. We get to learn and other folks get to share their awesome research and people, our listeners get to learn things that aren't wrong. <laughs> 
<laughs> yep. It's for you that we do this, everyone. <laughs> also, <laughs> and that's gonna, also yes. for those who are wondering, um, I um, we mentioned my um, own creative exploits. Um, oh, you're ceramic clown. Yeah. So um, I Did texted my it? mom about that and she left me on red. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> so. Well. It's it's a story that is unfolding still. I feel like maybe they don't have it anymore, and it went to a farm upstate. Yeah, or maybe Mm. I used like a clown emoji, and she just like didn't know what to do with that. Um, We'll find out. This may have to wait until the holidays. But well, I know (laughs) we're keeping them riveted. I know this is how we get them to come back. Yeah, um, yeah. Take it up with my mom. <laughs> yeah. Uh, everybody send an email to Amber's mom. Oh, God. At she was, Amber's mom she, at gmail.com. She, oh, my God. <laughs> don't do that. Uh, don't do that. No. So that's going to do it for this inaugural listener question episode. Let us know if you liked it and keep sending <laughs> us your com- What? The if next, people don't like it, next, we're not going to um, do it again. The next one will just be us reading comments that people made about this episode. it's a self-fulfilling cycle uh no do let us know if if you liked this new addition to our repertoire and keep sending us your comments questions and thoughts via all the things all the platforms facebook twitter instagram email we really 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 do love hearing from you all and also hey Leave us a review and some stars on Apple Podcasts while you're on that internet. You can find all our other episodes there and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Yeah. And if you, like Anna, are really moved by the back to school spirit and you're back back in your classes that you are either taking or teaching, um, tell your classmates. Yeah. And good luck with your school year, everyone. Yeah. Oh, oh man, I like yeah. learning. Yeah, um, and if you are not paying attention in your classes, you can find us all hey, now, over the internet. As a professor, put down that phone. Wait till after class, but then, Amber. But then, hit us on the Twitter. We are at Dirt Podcast. On Instagram, we are at The Dirt Pod. And on Facebook, we are The Dirt Podcast. Um, hey. Yes? Do you, <laughs> not you, everyone else. Do you like what we're doing? I do. You can support the show on Patreon. Oh, yeah. You can do that at patreon.com slash the dirt podcast. Our patrons, in addition to supporting the work that we do, because all of those funds go right back into the podcast, our patrons also get access to extra monthly episodes and bonus things like video content. Yeah. It's our faces. (laughs) Yep. And sometimes our pets. I mean, come for the pets, if nothing else. Uh, yeah. Oh, gosh. Yeah. No, really. It's come for our faces, stay for the pets. <laughs> yeah. Yep. That's how it works. Well, well, thanks, everybody, so much for listening. We love you so much. Yes. We could not do this without you. Nope. It would be no, sad. Really. We definitely couldn't do this episode without you. <laughs> no, for sure. <laughs> Nor any other. No. Okay, now thank it's you getting all. weird. Okay, thank you. Okay, bye. bye. Goodbye. Bye. Hang up. Hang up, no, everyone. You hang up. You hang up. <sighs> Bye. This show is produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network.
Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You could also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at archpodnet.com slash members. Thanks again and have a great day.